So uh, Jan's already kind of put some of this thinking in our minds uh, about walking to the moon. If you could imagine doing something like that. Well, let me do, let's scale it back a bit. Can you imagine the distance of a mile? Just try and picture that in your... How far is that? Where are you? A mile, right? What about five miles? Just expand it a little bit more. What about a hundred miles? Can you imagine 5.88 trillion miles, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I can't. No, I can't. No, 5.88 trillion miles. What's that um, measure of? Does anyone know? Uh, Does someone say? A light year. A light year, Andy. Yeah, of course, a scientist. A light year is 5.88 trillion miles, all right? Now, can you imagine 28 billion light years? No, definitely not, right? Well, that's the estimated size of the known universe. And it's getting bigger, apparently. And most of it is empty. Unless you talk about dark matter and all that, but that's beyond my pay grade. But it's most, let's just say for the sake of argument, it's mostly empty. It's why we call it space. <laughs> space. We can't really imagine it, can we? Uh, the size of the universe is beyond our comprehension. But how should we... How should we think about it? How do we kind of make sense of it? What effect does knowing that have on us? On the 14th of February, 1940, the Voyager, sorry, 1990, the Voyager 1 space probe, uh, about 6.4 billion kilometers from Earth, turned around one last time and took this photo, which is going to look terrible on here, but... I'm going to put it up anyway, right? You can probably barely see it. Uh, Solomon, can you see anything on this image? There's a dot. Do you know what that dot is? No. That is Earth. Planet Earth. It became known as the pale blue dot. Now, this is actually blown up even more. It's probably not much bigger than a pixel in the real thing. But there it is. Our planet suspended in, and the real image you can see, it's almost like a light, uh, a ray of lights uh, across it. Um, and the astronomer and atheist Carl Sagan said this after seeing this image. He said this, The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. That's the story we're told. The universe is huge. You are small. Therefore, you're not important. You're not privileged. You are tiny. You are obscure. 
You are alone in the darkness. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no plan. And you are foolish and delusional to think otherwise. That's what Carl Sagan saw. But what kind of message is that? What, what effect do you think that way of thinking about the universe has had on the last few generations? What kind of story is it telling us? And yes, it is a story. I don't mean that it's made up. The universe surely is as big as they say. I mean the story of how we make sense of it all. Because the Christian story is very different, isn't it? It looks at the vastness of space, this pale blue dot, and it says this. The universe, all of it, is only a second thought in the mind of God. His first thought is you, the church. Far from unimportant or obscure, Jesus says the church is the reason for everything. There is a person right at the center of it all called Jesus. And he rules all this for us. Today we're beginning this new series in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through to 14 mainly. And that will take us up to Christmas. And it's a pretty epic passage. It's one long continuous sentence actually in the Greek. This cascading avalanche of wonders and truths that ought to take our breath away. And the Apostle Paul writing this, he's writing to the Ephesians. Probably actually a group of churches in Western Asia Minor where modern day Turkey is. Uh, that same region as those letters of Revelation were written, which we saw and looked at over the summer, you may remember. And Paul is writing. He wants to encourage them. He wants to tell them about what it means to live out our Christian lives. And so he's writing this to encourage them. No doubt who are people who felt small, maybe who felt insignificant in the vast Roman Empire. All these other powers and forces moving around. How did the Ephesian church feel in a place so unwelcoming to Christians? Well, Paul wants to remind them of a bigger story, a bigger narrative of, of, of real truth. The real story of Jesus that they are a part of. It is a story of being the most blessed creatures in the universe. Chosen, adopted, forgiven, redeemed, illuminated, included, and sealed. Those are some of the words we're going to be looking at. I don't just want to kind of give you a better understanding of what those words sort of mean, but rather a deeper experience of them too. That they would shape us and mould us as God's people. So, let's begin, shall we, in verse 3. And let's think about what Paul is saying here about these blessings. Look at verse 3 again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So Paul is introducing 
His theme here begins with praise to the Father for every spiritual blessing he is giving us. And he's telling us something about the nature of those blessings too. They are family blessings, they are out of this world blessings, and they are all we need blessings. Firstly, they are family blessings. Paul says that we have these blessings because we are in the Son, the Son of God the Father. Now that phrase, in him, or some variation, comes 11 times in this passage alone. It's one of Paul's favourite ways to talk about being a Christian in his writings, to be in Christ. God reveals himself to us like a family. He is a family. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Together in perfect love for all eternity, Pour out that love. It's love brimming over, spilling over, and they want to share it with us. And, and, um, and so in God's grace, he creates this world in this grand love story. He creates the universe with human beings as his crowning creation. And then... The Father sends the Son into the world and Jesus joins our flesh to himself. And he becomes our brother. Then he dies for us on the cross and he rises again to clear away our sins so that through trusting in him alone, we are united with him completely. One with Christ. That's what it means to be in him And so since we are in the Son, we share the blessings of the Son, the love the Father has for the Son, we get to enjoy in Him. We share the Father with the Son now. He's now our Father as well. Paul says that, verse 2, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 5, he'll talk about adoption, which we'll look at. That's a family word. So the blessings of the Son of God belong to us because we are in the Son. We haven't had to do anything to get them. You don't have to earn them or be worthy of them. You just have to belong. These are the blessings of belonging to the family of God. Secondly, these are out of this world blessings. Paul says these are spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Now, notice these aren't every physical blessing. Physical blessing. Now, he, he's not talking about health and wealth and prosperity in this life. Who'd want those things? Who'd want those things? Those things are perishing. Those things are fading. Those things are fleeting. They are subject to decay. Even a tiny little fluttering moth can eat away at them. That's how vulnerable Those things are. No, these are heavenly and spiritual blessings. These aren't of this world. They transcend this world, never fading, never spoiling or perishing. They are safe. They are secure. They are lasting blessings. And these spiritual blessings or blessings of the Holy Spirit of God, they're not kind of kept in heaven for us like heaven's some sort of, you know, great big storage facility. They're given to us now, rooted and secure in Jesus. That's the connection. He has blessed us 
Paul says. Paul uses that phrase, heavenly places, five times in Ephesians. And most notably in chapter 1, verse 20 and chapter 2, verse 6, where the risen Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and we're told you are seated with him too. You're connected, one in Christ, spiritually. That's a present reality. We are in the Son. God is our Father. That's not a future thing. Uh, That's a relationship we have now and out of this world, blessing. But thirdly, these are also all we need, blessings. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing it says there's nothing lacking or missing here he's given every blessing that christ has to give is god lacking anything is christ missing something no of course not and so in him we lack nothing either we should never be kind of if only christian should we 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 shouldn't dwell on all the things we don't have and we don't need to beg god for more blessing there is nothing he's withholding from us we have christ and in christ we have all we truly need every spiritual blessing but we have to say don't we in our experience we we don't know these blessings in full yet our experience of these blessings is partial so so we want to know more of these blessings in our lives now We want to press into the reality of them more and more. It's like we're living in this great big mansion on these wonderful grounds, bigger than Downton Abbey kind of scale of things, but we're just in the cloakroom still. We're just in the cloakroom. There's so much more for us to experience and know. And that's what I hope this series will do for us in our church, that we'd know more and more and experience of these blessings and appreciation uh, of them. That would shape us and our identity and our lives. Because we belong. We belong to the blessed family in Jesus. We've been given blessings that are out of this world. And these blessings are all we need. So, that's what we're going to explore now together. We're going to explore one of these blessings. I wonder if you're ready for that. Let's step out of the cloakroom and let Paul now take us on a guided tour of all that God has given us. So let's look at verse 4. This idea of being chosen. Verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So Paul starts this sort of litany of blessings with this idea. We are chosen by God before the foundation of the world to share in a new identity. We've said already these blessings come to us, not because we've done something to get them, but because we belong. So, so I guess, how do we belong then? Well, well um, someone might answer or say something like, well, it's through faith. It's through hearing and believing the good news about Jesus. But Paul doesn't mention that until verse 13. Or we might say it's through the work of Christ. He died, he rose, he ascended. But that's not where Paul starts either. In fact, he doesn't start with anything that has happened in time or space. He goes right back into eternity before the world, beginning with what God the Father chose. Before the world was made, 
before humanity existed, before you were even a twinkle in your mother's eye, God chose you in Christ. Just try and get your head around that. How does this work, though? What does it mean to be chosen? Well, there's lots we could say here. Perhaps there are essentially two ways people have seen God's choosing. First, it's that God chose people before the world in order that they would believe. He chose them to believe. Or the other way some have tried to look at this is that God somehow sort of looked down time and looked into the future and saw that we would choose him. And so on that basis, he chooses us. But but I I think we really can't accept that second idea because it bases, it seems to me, God's decision on our decision. It seems to undermine the nature of salvation as entirely a work of God. And I think a better way of understanding his choosing is that it's according to his will, his will, it's according to his plan, and it's according to his grace. Firstly, God chose us according to his will. We believe in a sovereign God. And so does Paul at verse 5, verse 9, and verse 11. He's talking there about God working out things according to the purpose of his will, he says. Look at verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. It's according to his plan and his working out everything in conformity to what he wants. Paul himself, he's only apostle by the will of God, it says in verse 1. And so we see all through scripture, God, God sovereignly choosing and at work in all of that. He chose Israel, the Jews, out of all the nations, for example. And over and over and over again in the New Testament, God's people, the church, are called chosen. You're chosen. We cannot choose God. In sin, we are dead. We are by nature rebellious and sinful. We are blind, so we cannot see the light of the gospel of Christ. We cannot come to the Father by our own volition. So our salvation is all because of God's choosing according to his will. God chose you because he wanted to. You are saved. You believe according to his own will and his own divine and glorious purposes. I can't fully explain all of that to you. You may have lots of questions and I'm not going to be able to answer them all today. But I think that's what we're seeing. We're chosen according to his will. And therefore, God also chose us according to his plan. His plan. His choosing is not an afterthought, you see. It it wasn't his plan B. It was his plan before the foundation of the world. Paul says that. Before anything else, God had us, the church, on his mind and in his heart. And as verse 11 says, he's been sovereignly working out everything according to his plan to make sure his will is done and you can trace it perhaps through your own life as you look back on your own life you can see God's sovereign hand working in you to bring you to know Christ 
giving you a chance to hear the gospel, to hear the call of Jesus and to respond. But it's not only this plan worked out in your own individual personal life, it's a cosmic plan. Look at verse 9. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So it's God's plan to bring everything in heaven and on earth under Christ, so that in Christ we might be one with him too. All the cogs are moving. Everything God is doing is to bring in his church to Christ. It's for the sake of the church. We didn't read this, but look down at verse 18. Paul is, is, is uh, recounting his prayer. Look at verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, don't miss that. His glorious inheritance in the saints. We, the church, are his, Jesus' glorious inheritance. This is what God wants. This is, this is why he chose us, to give the church to Jesus. And Jesus deserves his bride. He deserves his inheritance, the reward of his suffering. After conquering sin and death and Satan, Jesus gets us. No, I'll take the toaster, please. No, I'll have the car, please. No, Jesus gets us, the church. Can he believe that? I can't looking around sometimes. <laughs> not you, not you, not you guys, not you. But this is what it's all for. The universe, everything, so that Christ may have us. He wants us. It's his good pleasure, he says, to have us. That's the plan. That's why he chose us, because Christ must have his glorious inheritance. Look at uh, verse 19, because Paul continues. And he, uh, to know his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Look, there it is again, like verse 11, all things under Jesus. And look how Christ, he, he conquers death, he's risen, he's ascended, he's going to be glorified. And look how he uses that power and authority. It's for the church to serve her, to save her, to sanctify her. This is why we can look at the universe differently. Certainly the universe is very, very big and we are very, very small in comparison. But God made the universe so big to show us how important we are to him. 
He's saying, you see those 28 billion light years of space? Well, you're more important than all of that put together. You were in my heart before any of this. And I rule it all for your sake. That's what his choosing means. We are not insignificant. We're not meaningless. We're not obscure. Like Carl Sagan says, we are the most precious and important thing in the universe because he chose us. Can you see, dear friends, this is the real story. This is the real gospel. The story of Jesus Christ. And that's why we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He chose us according to his will and according to his plan which he's working out to bring all things together. Of course, of course, we're wondering, why me? Why me? Why not them? Why doesn't he choose them? Why, why does he choose me? I don't know. <laughs> but it wasn't because I was worthy of it. That, that, that I somehow distinguished myself from other people because I was a bit more spiritually minded and I kind of got the gospel and I was a bit more clever or something like that. I didn't figure it out for myself. It wasn't anything to do with me. Indeed, if you were like me, you were a God hater. I hated God. So I'm really glad he chose me because I didn't choose him. I rejected him. And so not only did he choose the church according to his will and his plan, but according to his grace. The question isn't, why did God choose me and not someone else? But why did he choose anyone? No one deserves this blessing. What, what, kind, what kind of bride is it that Christ has won for himself? What kind of bride has he chosen from before the foundation of the world? It was a broken bride. A messy, sinful, enslaved bride. A bride who was once his enemy. And yet he came to me. And he came to you. He opened our blind eyes. He gave life to this dead heart and lifted us up so that we could trust in him. The love and grace and mercy of God is so extraordinary that he would choose us not because of who we are, but despite who we are. That's why three times... Three times, verse 6 and 12 and 14. What does Paul say? It's all to the praise of his glorious <coughs> grace. Undeserved, unmerited favour. He chose us according to his will, according to his plan and according to his grace. But we can't finish there. There's one last thing really to see. His choosing us for Christ includes another important purpose here in this verse. That we be holy and blameless. 
You were chosen despite the way you were, but not to remain the way you were. Christ died for you in order to cleanse you and wash you of your sins so that now, right now, you can stand, we can stand together right now in total confidence that before God the Father, we are holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. We stand in the holiness and blamelessness of Jesus. He's truly holy and blameless. And he gives us his, another word is his righteousness. We're clothed with his righteousness. We, we, that's what it means to be in Jesus. That's how God sees us. And yet while we remain in this body until glory, we struggle daily with sin. He, 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 and he's, so, he's working in us to make us holy and blameless like Jesus too. More devoted to God and more morally pure. Paul will pick this up again, uh, and I encourage you, read Ephesians in light of some of the things we're seeing today. Read the rest of Ephesians, because you'll see how Paul weaves it all together. Uh, look at verse um, chapter 5. Flick over to chapter 5, please. Verse 25, just to see a couple of verses here. Uh, he's addressing husbands and wives, and he says here, verse 25, chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there's that kind of bride imagery again, right? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We have the privilege of being chosen, and, and with that privilege comes a responsibility to be who we are. You've been chosen for the team. Now we need to be on the team. We are holy in Christ. So be holy in Christ. I've shared this idea before. But it's like a great prince. Who sets his love on a poor wretched street girl. She's begging for money in the street. She's a thief. And a whore. But he takes her and he marries her. He loves her. And so now, by virtue of the fact that she is one with the prince, she has become a what? A princess. That's who she is now. That's her new identity. So should she continue to beg for money when she lives in a palace? Should she steal again when she has the kingdom? Should she go back to the streets when she has the love of the prince? Of course not. Then how could we, chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, go back to our sins? We are in Christ. That means we are holy and blameless. So as Paul will go on to say later in Ephesians, let us 
put off our old self, live a life worthy of the calling we've received, not as unbelievers in the futility of their thinking, who see the universe as meaningless and empty, who indulge in all kinds of impurity and sexual immorality, but live as imitators of God, he'll say, living a life of love and service just as Christ has. That's why he chose us. To give us a new identity and a new way of living. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Beginning with his choosing us before the world began. He chose us according to his will, not ours. According to his plan fulfilled in Christ. According to his grace, not our goodness. And according to his purpose, To make us a holy bride. How do we respond to this? Three things. And this is really just a a minute to say this. First, get into the sun. (laughs) If I could put it that way. Get into Jesus. Trust in Christ. Turn from your sins. Join his church. Be one with Jesus By faith. Have you done that yet? Are you in Christ? Secondly, we should get on our knees. His choosing is a humbling reality, isn't it? And it leads us to praise God the Father. Let us be humble, a thankful people. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, let's get on with our holiness. With the help of the Spirit, with one another's encouragement, let us walk in the new life Christ has won for us. Now that you know who you are, what do you need to turn from today? What do you need to put away today? There are two competing stories about the universe, about existence, about your life. One says... Really, you're meaningless. You mean nothing. You're alone. You're a blue, pale dot in the darkness. The other, the gospel, says that you are a chosen people, loved and holy. Which story do you believe? Which story will you live in?